Nina Bhaskar is head of HR at Cooper Vision for Singapore, Malaysia and Southeast Asia. In her earlier roles, she has worked in HR at pharma and fintech companies. Given her experience as a coach and her work in talent and culture, we spoke to Nina about culture debt. How companies end up accruing culture debt and what is the price companies pay for accruing culture debt. We also spoke about the role of empathy, how managers and leaders can build trust and practice empathy, especially in a remote first world. If you're curious about how an HR practitioner views culture debt and what they recommend organizations to do about it, you'll want to listen to this one. This is the CTQ Smartcast, where we have conversations about up-leveling, deliberate practice, and getting future relevant. So, uh, welcome, Nina. Welcome to the CTQ Smartcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harish. Yeah. So, uh, you know, starting with a slightly tough one, uh, you know, we talk about debt. Uh, people know about debt in the financial sense. Uh, people also understand uh, debt in terms of technical debt, right? So, if, if you just describe debt as borrowing from your future self, um, let's talk about culture debt. So, culture debt is short-term decisions that will impact the company culture in the longer term. So, how do companies end up, you know, incurring culture debt and what are the implications or the price that companies can pay for incurring the culture debt? So, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, right now the technical debt and the usual debt that we know of. So when you talk about culture debt, uh, when a company chooses to overlook the company culture uh, in times of you know growth and expansion, and it happens a lot with startups, that's when a company incurs culture debt. And uh, unlike, you know, what we understand of debt, which is tangible, culture debt is invisible and it can have huge impacts on an organization. So if it's not recognized in time, uh, it can primarily have uh, such an impact on the organization that it doesn't exist. And why it happens is because organizations, when they are on high accelerated growth, either there is no HR function or it's a very um, basic level HR function where they're, all they're doing is dishing out letters, but there is no solid framework, there is no processes, policies, or guidelines to support that high accelerated growth. And right. Uh, uh, you know, when, when you ask about the implications, as I said, that, you know, it could be very scary because uh, you could be dealing with turnover, you could be dealing with low morale, uh, productivity, low productivity, there could be legal implications, there could be cost implications, and all of this could lead to, you know, uh, having an impact on your branding, your reputation, which eventually can kill your business. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as uh, you know, you were saying what uh, came out was that these are all small things, small compromises that you make, which sort of add up over a period of time and then suddenly it hits you. Uh, so can you give some more concrete examples of what are these kind of compromises that we are talking about? Are these in terms of hiring, the way things are being done in the company? Can you give some concrete examples of these compromises? definitely hiring so you know a lot of times when you're hiring you're just focusing on technical skills you're not focusing on if it's a if it's the right fit in terms of leadership qualities in terms of uh, certain cultural attributes so when you uh, overlook those things and when you hire somebody just for technical capabilities it's great because you know with startups let's say you have to get the product out so you have somebody who comes and builds your product and it's great but what happens once the product is out what happens when you're bringing in more people? What happens to the culture then? And that's when organizations go back and see, look at you know who they've hired, what happened, and that's too late. Because by then either that leader has brought in people who are just like him, which kind of uh, shapes the culture of the organization, which becomes difficult to change then, or uh, you know there are, there is a lot of attrition, there is a lot of retention issue in the organization because people who align with the culture that you have don't survive because the leader that you hired possibly is not aligned to the culture that you have. So okay. definitely hiring. Uh, lack of processes and policies. I've seen lack of processes in place. So let's say an exit uh, case, a lever. If you don't have things to document, if you don't have data to support, people can actually sue you. They can take you to court. And they can, and that 
also means that if you don't have processes in place, your managers don't know what to do. So if your managers don't know how to deal with an exit situation and they don't know how to document it right, you can actually uh, you know, be playing into the hands of somebody who's leaving the organization and certainly leaving the organization not on a good note. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like you said, these are all, you know, sort of things that people want to uh, do in the short term. They want to get someone in because they need to roll out the product or this feature or something like that. Uh, but eventually they realize that, no, this was, you know, probably a wrong decision when they go back. Right. Uh, that is good for realization. Uh, we know that a lot of companies might actually be in this state right now, right? Where in the last two years, it was easy to raise a lot of funding. So they got in people, had to show traction to investors. So they did, you know, make these kind of compromises. Uh, now, instead of looking back, uh, you know, if you were to project forward, right? You've realized that, okay, the decision may not have been great. What do you do now? So uh, once an organization has realized that, you know, uh, you have good culture debt, uh, you know, the first thing they should do is they should make it visible. They should be candid. They should be honest with the employees about what has happened, why it has happened. Own it up. That's very important. Because uh, if you are suffering from culture debt, that also means that there is a huge uh, impact on trust in the organization. So owning things up is going to at least, uh, you know, instill some level of confidence in your people that you are aware of what's happening and you're going to take steps to uh, mitigate whatever risk is involved or at least reduce it. Hmm. The second thing is, uh, aside from making it visible, ask your people, uh, what do they want? How do they feel? You know, when you talk about psychological safety at work, are they in a position to voice their opinions? Will they be heard? So that is very important because every single voice in an organization matters. And if you don't make your employees feel that, then it's a problem. You would not know what you really need to work on. You, you can say you have a culture debt, but what is it? What do you need to work on? Uh, then, you know, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, not just hire for technical skills, but hire for culture fit too. And I'm not saying that managers need to bring in somebody similar to them. You need, uh, you know, diversity. You need that uniqueness. But somebody who aligns with the values, be it accountability, be it integrity, be it you know, doing right when no one is watching, it could be any of the values that your organization lives by, you see those elements in somebody that you're trying to hire. And uh, starting at the top, you know, we say that you know, things, have to, things shouldn't be top, top down, but in this case, it should be top down because you need to have competent leaders. You need to have leaders who are invested in people's growth people who are emotionally intelligent, who understand how teams operate, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, how can they make them feel safe at workplace and allow them to grow. Right. So two follow-up questions uh, on this one is, are there any quantitative measures that founders or leaders can use? It could be, you know, something like an ENPS or what should they be looking for in employee satisfaction surveys? to get a sense of this because you know this cannot be just a very uh, you know intuitive thing right that yeah i think there is some culture debt uh, that that's not something which people are comfortable with uh, as using uh, a, a means for you know deciding on things like this so what are the measures that people can look at there are so many things that you can do but to start off with something as simple as you know just do a small survey if you are a startup, you don't want to incur a lot of cost. You know, uh, you have so many online survey tools available. You know, monkey survey is the cheapest and the easiest one, isn't it? And everyone has been using it. So, you know, start a small survey. Try to find out the pulse of the organization. You know, uh, organizations do global engagement surveys, which is done annually or every two years. That is a great tool. Uh, NPS, as you mentioned, you know, they can do an ENPS. And that's a great tool because... Uh, you know, NPS scores are not just for uh, businesses or customers, it's also for employees and it gives you a good understanding of where your organization sits, whether somebody who's working within the organization will be willing to recommend or refer a friend or an acquaintance to join your organization. They could be working with you for monetary reasons, they could be working with you because they have some reasons because of which they are tied to the organization, but are they willing to refer somebody? 
Are they willing to say, are they proud of the organization they're working with? Are they willing to go out and say, yes, this is the organization that I'm working with and I'm not going to go to any other organization. When it comes to uh, some tools that uh, leaders or founders can use in terms of getting the pulse of the organization is, there are so many surveys available and the cheapest and uh, the most commonly used one is SurveyMonkey, uh, right? So if, if you were to use that and if you were to do a quarterly survey, you can find out what your employees are feeling, how they're feeling. And it could be about some changes that you made. It could be about some new introductions. It could be about some restructuring. It could be about uh, some new developments. It could be about moving into new markets. It could be about anything. It could even be about some small engagement activity, but trying to understand whether they are on board with it, trying to understand whether what you're doing, are they liking it? And also uh, for startups, you know, trying to understand if the employees uh, still align with the vision that you started with, because many a times when startups start, there is a vision and then it gets polluted and then it goes to something else. And people who joined uh, I would say the ship in the beginning of the journey, they feel that, you know, uh, the direction that they thought this organization will be going to, it's not happening anymore. So trying to get a sense of understanding about what the, uh, what the employees feel, you can do it very easily. NPS surveys are good. I think uh, that allows you to get an understanding about your own reputation in the organization. And, uh, you know, uh, one thing that I really like about NPS is if I was to ask an employee who's in the organization, if you would refer somebody to join us, if they say no, then you know they are not with the organization out of loyalty. They are in the organization because of some compulsion or something which is holding them back from moving to another good opportunity. Or possibly they are waiting for another good opportunity and that has not happened yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, is there any recommended time or size of the company when you get started with something like this? What What would you advise founders? For startups, you can use uh, SurveyMonkey. Uh, that's uh, available for anybody to use and you can do it quarterly. Uh, that's going to help you figure out, you know, um, how your employees are adapting to the change because startups are highly dynamic and flexible yeah. and things change every day. That has been my experience that I could be working on a deck today and tomorrow I'm told that, you know, that's not what we want because a certain direction has changed, right? Yeah. So every uh, quarter, uh, when it comes to bigger organizations, the usual norm is uh, they do global engagement surveys and these surveys happen every year or every two years. And then in between, you may also have your biannual survey, which could be through SurveyMonkey or some other form or tool. But bigger organizations, when they do these global engagement surveys, that's usually through uh, some external vendors or partners, like partners of the world, uh, where you know, you're using their specific set of questions and there is a method of calculating the responses, uh, which is then you know, put into action for the next one or two years. So that, you know, before the next survey comes in, those pain areas or pay points you have worked on. Right. Yeah. yeah. The second question that had come to mind uh, with your previous answer uh, was that there may be some skill gap as well, right? For, say, managers to be more empathetic. They may want to be more empathetic, but they're just not able to do it. They've not been, you know, it's, it's, it could be an unknown unknown. It could be a known unknown for uh, some people. Um, and learning especially in case of a startup uh, would probably be you know lower in the list of priorities but you and i know that you know it is important enough to actually change the course of the whole company so how do you then reconcile between these competing priorities of yeah we need to ship out yes there is intent the person doesn't you know mean bad but actions are not really helping. Then how do you sort of you know, reconcile the situation? How, what can you advise the founders about this? This is something that I've uh, observed and uh, this is not just with startups. Right. Uh, I personally know people who are great when it comes to execution, when it comes to leading teams to accomplish objectives, but when it comes to emotional intelligence piece, uh, they face challenges. So for them, it's 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 a mix of unknown, unknown, and known, unknown, because they don't know how to navigate through this. Hmm. And uh, uh, not everyone is, uh, you know, uh, highly emotionally intelligent. And uh, that's that's okay, because if we were to have everybody same, then we won't have unique perspectives, right? 
but uh, i think when uh, we talk about leaders being trying to be a bit more emotionally intelligent they can look at uh, you know uh, going for programs where you know there are tools or methods or avenues for them to explore how they can be more emotionally intelligent uh, they can possibly take up uh, some coaching uh, where you know uh, coaching is a process where you are uh, allowing somebody to do to be on a self discovery process so allowing them to see from other person's perspective so that they realize that when they respond in a certain matter or certain situation how the other person is receiving it right uh, i i do believe that you know you can listen to a lot of podcasts and you can read a lot but unless you know you have some practical implementation and when we say uh, putting yourself into their shoes mm-hmm. when you know you go on that self discovery journey and you try to do a role play sort of a thing where you really putting yourself into their shoes and mm-hmm. trying to see how would you feel if you were to get a certain response that could help so uh, that is what i would say uh, because uh, trainings are one thing but it's about you know uh, trying to find out that how somebody feels uh, how do you do that so that could be through coaching conversation that could be through open conversation mm-hmm. and that is something that i truly recommend uh, where, where i work that you know if you're facing challenges with your manager and let's say one person is emotionally intelligent quite high there but the manager isn't my recommendation to the employee or the team member is go have a conversation tell them you need the space tell them this space is needed not for work but to have a candid conversation and tell them what you need tell them you can't go beyond this if you don't have this and tell them that you know this is the support they need for you to get to Uh, perform to your best of your ability and uh, i can tell you that it has worked mm. people have felt more comfortable with their managers i've received feedback where they've said you know it kind of opened uh, you know uh, conversations in a more uh, informal manner and i feel more relaxed now mm-hmm. right uh, we spoke about managers and leaders getting coaching uh, but how can leaders and managers become good coaches for their teams uh, you know what what do you recommend for that so uh, i think uh, personally i feel coaching has become a very very important leadership trade off late and uh, why i say off late is because uh, even though coaching as a science has been there for more than a decade uh, its importance relevance has only come into light in the last 5 to 6 years hmm. and more so during the pandemic so uh, i i feel managers have realized that you know how a coaching culture leads to higher productivity uh, higher engagement there is loyalty there is retention uh, versus a culture which is top down and uh, you know in the last two years we've heard this term called great resignation mm-hmm. which is now being called great reshuffling because if if you if you realize it's not that people left the organization because they wanted uh, to leave work they just did not want to work under certain leadership styles certain yeah. ways of working which is why they are going back to workforce but they are not going back to the same organizations so uh, when you ask me how managers and leaders can be effective coaches the first thing is to display a high level of emotional intelligence uh, which is only and only possible if they work on improving as as i mentioned earlier the level of emotional intelligence because uh when you work on your emotional intelligence it allows you to firstly understand how you react you respond and then you know it allows you to understand others their emotions and come from a place of non judgment that can only happen if you if you if you get into a space where you're not trying to judge somebody because if you're trying to judge someone they are also going to get defensive and that's going to fail uh, the entire process of beat coaching or beat trying to build a relationship mm. uh some things that i can share because you know i am a certified coach and some things that i do or some of my peers do uh when you are a, you are in a coaching conversation uh you listen more you speak less so it's a 30 70 combination so a coach would typically speak for 25 to 30% and 70% is by the client so they are in the driver's seat and they decide the direction of the conversation right uh managers should try to act as a sounding board and not a space where they know all the answers because then you're becoming you know then you're not empowering them 
you see a problem, you give them the solution, and then you expect them to come up with solutions. How is that possible? That is not possible. Uh, in coaching, we do ask a lot of hows and whats, open-ended questions. How did this happen? Why did this happen? So, you know, showing that level of curiosity, uh, that is very important because when you ask hows and whats, that's when they think deeper and they try to figure out, okay, why did this happen? Because many times people don't think about hows and whats. You just come up with something and they say, oh, this happened. But how did this happen or what happened, right? Uh, creating a space where, as I said, thinking beyond and, you know, asking a question. So if somebody says, uh, you know, how should I solve this issue? Uh, you may want to ask, how do you think you will solve it? And letting them know it's okay. No answer is wrong. We're just trying to brainstorm. And possibly the answer that I give you, but the answer that you give me could be better than mine. So building that space and, you know, uh, asking for challenges. It's very, very important. Even in coaching conversations, we do that. When we set a goal with a client, we always ask, what are the roadblocks that you see? And then we look at, you know, support or resources to overcome those roadblocks. And lastly, uh, there is no coaching conversation that happens without accountability. You need to have an action. You need to have an accountability that could be individual and that could be shared. But there has to be an accountability so that they know what is it that they, they are going to achieve. Yeah, yeah. So you you mentioned uh, over the last two years. So can you also talk about some of the challenges that came up in the last two years and how you overcame or you you know saw others overcome in the process of you know coaching uh, their team members you know with the pandemic and you know, because. I don't think, you know, this seems to be ending anytime soon. Some of the challenges seem to be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there for good. So that, that would be an interesting, uh, you know, take for people to know about. So some of the key challenges I think everyone faced, especially people who work in corporate setups or who run organizations, uh, was, like, you know, the remote working. Right. So, and when you're remote working, how do you trust people? Because we all based our trust. Uh, on the basis of seeing and meeting people. Mm. If somebody's in the office, you trust them. If somebody's seen working in the office, you trust them. That, so visibility was one thing that was kind of the basis or the foundation of trust mm. pre-pandemic, isn't it? So uh, some of the key challenges I think people faced was building that trust or having that trust on teams, uh, showing empathy. Now, how do you show empathy when you can't give a pat on somebody's back? And you can't shake hands with somebody, right? So empathy became a, a big uh, question mark or a point of conversation. Uh, then, you know, how do you keep the teams engaged? How do you keep them motivated? What do you do to bring that stickiness back into within the teams, into the organization? So these were, I think, key things because these were the things that kind of forced leaders to also think about how do we retain people? Because the great resignation thing, as I said earlier, started happening. And then everyone was saying, oh, it's because, you know, we are not meeting each other. It's because, you know, employees don't see each other, so they are not engaged. But that is not really the reason. People can still be engaged in a remote setup. It's about, you know, how do, they, how do leaders, how much do they invest? Do they, uh, you know, schedule meetings and talk about the meetings? And then at the end of the meeting, they decide the outcomes and then they disconnect. But are they taking additional time to invest in people? Are they making personal uh, time uh, with people, having those conversations? So you do, you can get personal with your employees. You don't have to get private, <laughs> right? So right. as long as you understand that hmm. and you can make space for that time, that bonding, uh, you know, uh, this uh, these challenges won't be there. But these are some of the key challenges that I saw. I think that's, that's a great line that I'm going to steal from you. You can get personal, but not private. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, taking this to uh, at a larger scale, right? How can companies ensure, you know, their culture and values are actually being practiced by people? What can you do at a more institutional, if you want to call it, uh, institutional level to ensure people are practicing these? What can companies do? Uh, it's about walking the talk, isn't it? We always say, you know, they should walk the talk. So it's about walking the talk. But when we say walk the talk, what is it? Firstly, having a clear purpose. Hmm. 
uh, I think the way uh, the world has changed and uh, we see people joining different kinds of organizations or industries versus where they were before, people want to work with organizations who serve a higher purpose and who have a sense of purpose. So being very clear about your purpose and your direction, that's very important. And being able to celebrate that. Because if you have a good purpose, if you have a clear purpose, but you're not celebrating it, who's seeing it? Who's going to join you then, right? So being able to celebrate that, acknowledge that, that is very important. The second thing is inclusivity. So you can't go diverse without being inclusive. So first thing is, you know, being inclusive, starting from the bottom line to top, everyone should be able to have a say. And that means that, you know, uh, as much as there is, a distinction between the bottom line and the top line in terms of rank and roles and all of that, when it comes to interactions, that distinction should not show up. They should be able to comfortably, uh, you know, interact and have a conversation with their leadership. They should not think that oh, this person is at a certain level. And that's where humility, I think, comes into play of leaders, right? Uh, high level of integrity. So as I said earlier, doing the right thing even when no one is watching. That is very important. And it's not just to show external people or stakeholders, but it's about, you know, as a person, what level of integrity do you have? And if nobody was watching, would you do the right thing? And that's the kind of people and leaders if we have in the organization, employees are going to see and they're going to imbibe that. Uh, lastly, I would say a servant leadership. That's a topic that has come up a lot in the last few years. I think the leaders who practice servant leadership, they are extremely popular. They are highly influential. And that's because they don't believe in leading by giving commands or orders. They believe in leading by uh, you know, empowering their team members, by providing support resources. They're the ones who are actually standing, uh, you know, at the end of the uh, line, I would say, and then, you know, just wishing well their teams and just providing that support and motivation. It's like, you know, how parents, they stand on the sidelines and they cheer their kids when they are in a sports race or something. It's like that. Th th those are the kind of leaders I'm talking about when we say servant leadership. So that's very crucial. Right. And, you know, this is more of a reflection question for you over the years that you have worked with, you know, all kinds of companies, global MNCs. Uh, what uh, if I were to ask you the three takeaways that you could sort of distill your HR career into, what would those three, you know, three lines be? Okay, that's a tough one <laughs> because you know there are so many things that can that come into my mind. But uh, the first thing would be be a business partner, not be operational. You know, uh, and when you when I say be a business partner, try and understand your business. Try to know more about your business. What are the challenges? Uh, what are the highlights? Uh, the product that you have, because if you know about those things, you'll think like a business, and that's where you add value. So. When, you, when I say be a business partner, think like business. The second thing would be, uh, if you have a seat on the table, don't lose that seat. You know, we've been talking about, you know, let's have a seat on the table. We don't have a seat on the table. Businesses don't understand us. We do have a seat on the table. So if you have a seat on the table, don't lose that seat. And if you don't have a seat on the table, find out why you don't have one. We can't be saying that businesses don't see us as an important business partner or as a business partner, there is a reason why they don't. Possibly there is a need for education, possibly there's a need for awareness, possibly there's a need for visibility or some value add. Figure out why you don't have that space. And then, you know, do things to find that space for yourself, that voice for yourself. Because if you don't have that, you uh, will remain a back-end process. And that is not what HR is. Uh, lastly, I would say invest in yourself. As HR, you know, we curate programs for employee development, leadership development, but what about us? So a lot of times we kind of uh, overlook our own development. So I would say uh, for HR practitioners and for HR leaders, invest in your teams, uh, be it mental well-being, be it uh, physical well-being, be it some developmental programs, allow them to upskill themselves because that's the only way you can actually be a true business partner. 
right i think those are three very pithy uh, you know takeaways but uh, what that has done is you know uh, brought another follow up question for me <laughs> so 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 if if you're talking about um, you know leaders and managers uh, being able to develop uh, trust right build that trust among their uh, people what you are talking about is you know business needs to develop that trust in hr so you know similarly how do you actually you know operationalize this right one uh, is that yes there is a trust deficit so obviously trust needs to improve uh, how does business trust hr or how do or and a is there a parallel with leaders trying to you know gain the trust of their uh, teams is there something you know similar there or are they two very different things comment on both so uh, i'll take it in two parts and yeah. the first uh, thing i would say is there is a difference okay there is a difference and uh, the first uh, first i'll take the hrp so if the leaders are not seeing us as a business partner as i said earlier that's because either we don't understand the business or we don't understand how the leaders operate and at the same time we are not confident enough to communicate because there is a lack at our end hmm. right and that could be understanding the business that could be understanding of uh, how, the potential challenges expectations or it could be simply uh, our inability to communicate what works and what doesn't work so uh, as hr business partners it's very important as i said earlier to upskill ourselves to understand the business right so that you can add value and also challenging these status quo to be able to say no but to know when to say no you can't be saying no to everything so this is something as a learning i got from one of my professors from temple university he said you know the first 6 months as an hr practitioner you never say no because then when you say no people will say oh there is a reason why she is saying no she never says no and people will buy that so uh, that's very important to know when to say no but not always say no uh then when it comes to employees uh i would say uh, that trust element uh, that has been uh, a challenge and a matter of uh, a topic of uh, uh, conversation for a very long time and especially because of pandemic i think it has come up more so so it's a two way process and uh, you know uh, i remember there was a research that was done where uh, people shared that you know 45% of the people shared that lack of trust in leadership is detriment to their work they feel less motivated they feel unproductive and a lot of leaders expect the teams to trust them but there is and this is something that i asked recently to a leader i said do you trust them because the leader kept saying that you know they don't trust me and i said do you trust them and the response that i got was not very convincing but that's the thing they feel it you know as human beings we feel the vibe we feel the energy so if you're not trusting me i will have that uncertainty and i will not trust you so it's it's a two way process and this has been there uh, but as i said earlier highly emotional intelligent leaders they are pretty good at managing this even if they are new because they know how to navigate through these uncertainties and challenges and they try to use their level of emotional intelligence Uh, to understand about each and every person in the team what drives them what are their motivators what are their challenges without questioning their ability to perform well hmm. to work well right yeah and and you know another follow up question uh, you know these days uh, empathy is again you know something uh, that we hear a, a lot uh, but sometimes there is a genuine challenge for people at the decision making levels because they've not been through the kind of situations that you know their team members are going through uh, you could actually have things everything from ageism right i mean there are people that i know who are in leadership positions whose children and their classmates are now working in the same companies uh, so obviously there's a difference in uh, generation the way they think what they've been exposed to uh, you know the way they decide the way they multitask you know all this millennials and you know all that talk that uh, we have that's a, a a genuine sort of challenge for uh, people 
and you know with the pandemic you know socio cultural you know backgrounds and contexts are also very different in this kind of a situation how do people actually develop that empathy right how do i know how a 22 year old if i am a you know 55 year old leader how does a 22 year old person joining from campus think how do i you know even answer that question i think uh, organizations really want to cultivate a culture of empathy the first thing is talking about it mm-hmm. making it visible when i say making it visible talking about it's required it's needed why it's needed because unless you talk about it you show that it matters nobody is going to really care so that's very very important that you talk about you know the fact that you want to be an organization that practices empathy why it is important what changes it's going to bring then being present that's very important being available and this is for leaders this is for management where you know uh, you can say that you know we want to inc- uh, you know be an empathetic organization and all of that but uh, are you present are you available when people need you and then if you're available are you curious about what's happening with them because that's where the investment comes into play if you're not curious about what's happening and when i say curious it's again not getting private with somebody mm-hmm. but if uh, you know being able to understand somebody's body language being able to understand somebody's behavior when you're day in day out working with somebody you kind of start paying attention to how somebody acts or reacts so those non verbal cues are you able to uh, you know uh, are you able to understand those identify those because somebody could be you know in a normal day behaving in a certain manner but you know uh, all of a sudden for a week or so they've started displaying a very different way of behavior or uh, some uh, you know uh, issues with their temper then that is a sign that there is something wrong are you able to identify that as a leader right that is again empathy because you're being mindful you're being proactive so we need to encourage our leaders to pay attention to those non verbal cues we need to encourage our leaders to pay attention to uh, things which are not being discussed in a meeting so having that kind of a gut feeling or a sixth sense uh, another thing is you know being vulnerable i am a person who is generally sold on vulnerability because i feel that you know that brings out uh, the realness in a person so being vulnerable uh, and when i say being vulnerable being emotional it's not about you know crying or something but being able to uh, courageously talk about some of the things where you failed possibly or some of the challenges that you failed because people don't dislike you for sharing your vulnerable stories they like you more they you know it allows you to build trust so doing that uh, being genuinely open to feedback and ideas because that shows humility that shows self awareness it doesn't bring you down or it doesn't make you less of a leader it just shows that you know you're open to ideas and feedback from everybody and it's one team uh, organizations can look at building programs where employees can understand how to apply emotional intelligence and how to build that empathy culture so that they can support their colleagues because empathy is not just for you not just for me it also is a way of understanding how our colleagues are feeling so that we can support them because you never know who's fighting what battle right uh, showing appreciation even if it's small uh, you know celebration a very small thing it could be but showing appreciation really uplifts a person so if you are able to do that that shows that you know the person value matters you know you value that person and uh, as i said earlier you know being able to care for somebody personally uh making time even if it's 10 minutes 15 minutes to just pick up the phone and say hi hey how you doing you know uh, it could be that somebody's wife is not well or it could be somebody's son uh, it was their son's first day at school and they shared it with you and even if it may not seem like a very crucial piece of information just a part of their day to day life but if you were to remember and just ask them they'll be very happy they'll feel surprised that you remember that and that's again a mark of empathy or i would say humility right yeah i think the the big takeaway that i am you know taking from this is just bringing that to the fore right the fact that you know you there are differences and you need to be empathetic 
I think that's the first uh, step. Bring that to the fore, make it part of the narrative, let people connect to each other at a more human level, engineer opportunities for people to you know, connect each other, connect with each other. Like one of our you know clients was saying, you know, you have APIs for uh, you know programs to talk to each other. We still don't have APIs for humans, <laughs> and that's what I think you need to do. So you know, if you are able to build those APIs, uh, you know everything is sorted. <laughs> yeah. So one of the final questions uh, uh, right now. So what are the books, podcasts, courses? You know, people. Uh, who have shaped your thinking and you know whom would you recommend to our listeners and viewers that's that's a very interesting one uh, harish because uh, over the last many years uh, i've evolved from being a voracious reader uh, i used to read, i mean i used to read so much that i used to say that i drink up books but uh, from being that kind of a voracious reader i've evolved to be now a listener or an observer i don't read much to be very honest and uh, that surprises people but what happens is um, i i don't read read a book but you know there is social media there are so many channels so um, i just you know look at things and i try to it's like you know uh, taking a leaf of learning out of something just lodging it in my subconscious and just moving forward with it that's that's what i do and trust me when i say it i have a very good memory but i never remember movie names i never remember book titles uh, i i just remember something small from a book or something and that's about it but uh, if i have to uh, give you names uh, of some things uh, that i would say okay i would read possibly something that may surprise you is i've always been fascinated by bhagavad gita since i was a kid mm-hmm. and uh, there used to be this uh, painting in my house uh, which had one of the shlokas and at that point of time i did not even know what it meant because it's sanskrit but uh, i would just read it in sanskrit and just walk away but uh, i kind of realized that i was always fascinated and it had nothing or it has nothing to do with the culture or the religion that i've been raised into because i'm pretty secular that way uh, i go to mosque and uh, gurudwaras and everything but it's it's just that i find it to be very practical in nature and i think it applies even more so in today's world where we talk about you know uh, being unconditional being selfless or doing things for others or being kind to each other or you know what you do comes back to you things like those you know uh, and uh, as i was growing and you know i realized that you know that's those are the learnings that i was taking from that book having said that i can't read the original bhagavad gita not at all i don't have the mental bandwidth for that i've gotten my learnings from you know different soaps that you watch uh, or different mythological serials that you watch but i really wanted to get hold of uh, bhagavad gita in some simplified version or form which actually happened because um, uh, radhi devlukya shetty Uh, she apparently shared five top books that she recommended and one of them was a simplified version of bhagavad gita which is available on amazon in blue color and the moment i saw it i was like okay i want this because you know it's simplified it's easy and i can understand uh then you know there are so many other books like lean in from sheryl sandberg which talks about you know uh, choosing work as well as family uh, when it comes to women right Uh, or there is there are books from from Michelle Obama which is the becoming that mm-hmm. i've read but i also like uh, you know uh, the human stories that you come across possibly on linkedin or some other platforms one example would be you know about uh, padmashree dr kalpana saroj how she rose uh, from where she was uh, to you know to be the chairperson of kamani tubes and that's that's incredible and i do have people in my life friends who've actually gone from rags to riches so that's something as i said earlier vulnerability i'm sold on it and i love that and one last book possibly i can recommend is something which was given to me by my ex manager uh it's it's from uh, himan sunim uh, the author of uh, love for imperfect things and the book is the things you can see only when you slow down it's i i personally like it because some days when you feel a little chaotic mentally uh i would just go and open one random page and there is something written which could be totally unrelated to how i'm feeling but still there is something beautiful 
uh, in those lines that you can pick up and you can say, ah, oh, that uplifts me. Okay, I think these are uh, you know very useful recommendations, uh, which which we will you know, add to our show notes along with links for people to purchase. Uh, yes. So coming to the end of this uh, conversation, uh, we will want you to give your hot takes on you know certain things, words, topics, themes that that I will uh, ask you about. So I will be asking about what is the future relevance of each of these things. So the first one. What do you think is the future relevance of gig economy? So I would say that, you know, uh, people want that autonomy. People want the freedom to be able to work, be able to earn, but also at the same time, enjoy life. And post-pandemic, no, post-pandemic, yes. You know, it's, it's become more important for everybody. So it's going to be there, but I don't think people are going to leave corporate roles too. They may go in for a part-time role. They may go in for a blend but people who want to have something on the sidelines for them to some additional revenue stream uh, coming in so that, you know, if times were to change, like what happened in 2020, uh, they can fall back on that and they don't have to worry about what if I get fired from a job. Okay. What do you think is the future relevance of LinkedIn as a platform? LinkedIn is amazing. Uh, LinkedIn is great. I'm just not sure if it's becoming Facebook of, uh, you know, professional networking. Uh, sometimes I feel like that, not all the times. Um, the content is amazing. There are a lot of things to learn. There are good trainings available. A lot of uh, events have started happening on LinkedIn because they provide that platform. I really like uh, stories where people talk about themselves or their journey or you know something else where you see that humane connection but at the same time I think uh, you know people also need to realize that uh, you know you you don't have to wish your wife happy birthday on LinkedIn it's not Facebook. <laughs> okay uh, you know I, I, I guess what you're saying is you want LinkedIn to come up with the secret feature of deleting these kind of you know birthday wish posts <laughs> and good morning posts. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, you know, that they should do it. There is no suggestion in this, but I think it's about people being more mindful right. about why each platform exists, why it came into existence, how it adds value, and not just keep, uh, you know, spamming uh, hmm. everyone with content which may not be relevant or which could be personal. That's all. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and the final one, uh, left of field, what do you think is the future relevance of Bollywood? with all the OTTs and regional language cinema becoming more and more popular. What do you think is the future relevance of Bollywood? No, I have no take there because uh, whatever I'm going to say is not going to be right. But uh, all I would say is, you know, please keep giving us more cinema, more movies. And, uh, and I'm somebody who, uh, unlike a lot of my friends, I don't judge a movie and say, oh, this was such a waste of time. It really has to be a very, very, very badly done movie or a very boring movie for me to say that. So I keep my brain at home when I watch a movie. I mean, I don't put sense into it. So I'm, I'm happy with, you know, if it's on OTT or if it's in theaters, whatever is, you know, whatever helps me to forget the day-to-day -day, uh, work and stress, that's, that's good for me when it comes to Bollywood. Okay, all right. On that note, uh, I think this is a great conversation, Dina, where we moved from, you know, empathy, uh, you know, people building trust, HR, how should they find a, a, a seat on the table or at least retain it. I think we covered a whole range of uh, topics, starting from culture debt, right? Uh, that's where we started. How can, you know, how do companies end up incurring, uh, uh, you know, culture debt and what should they do about it? So I think we covered a whole range of topics and there should be a lot of actionable takeaways for a lot of founders and leaders, uh, you know, who I know will be listening uh, to this uh, podcast. So thanks a lot for this great fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harish, for inviting me. I had full fun. So thank you very much. And I hope whatever I shared is of used to whoever is listening to us yeah thank you if you like this we know you care about your and your team's future relevance you can find us and you now click on the subscribe button on youtube spotify google and apple Podcasts. you can also find us on twitter linkedin facebook and instagram 
there are two ways to enter the insider group of friends of CTQ. A Telegram channel where you'll get daily tidbits that help you think about future relevance and our weekly email newsletter called The Up Leveler. We've got some fabulous testimonials from our subscribers. We share special discount codes for CTQ compounds and exclusive invitations to our events on both these channels. Just go to choose to think.com, that is think with a Q, and you'll find all the links to subscribe. You owe it to yourself.